King's Cross, I'm, I'm truly honored to be able to minister the word with you this morning, and I'm especially pleased that Casey is ministering to the Church of Blaze family at this very hour. Uh, and so it was his idea for a pulpit swap. I actually was fighting for a joint service. And so we're going to keep working towards that. I don't know if Casey has mentioned much, but uh, he and I were introduced to each other by Ernest O'Dunsey. Ernest O'Dunsey uh, used to work at Restore OKC, a beautiful young man of God that introduced, uh, he just, for whatever reason, he felt that the Spirit of God said that you two need to meet. And that's literally what he did. We, he called us together at a coffee shop. We sat down together, and then Ernest disappeared. And so for the, for the, the next two years, about every other week, a couple times a month, Casey and I have been meeting for coffee and getting to know one another, getting to talk about each other's families, and hearing about what's going on in our respective churches. And so uh, I've, I've been hearing about the growth and what God is doing here at King's Cross. I've been praying for uh, you guys I know are getting ready to elect elders, major step in your church, and we've been praying about that together and encouraging each other in that journey. So uh, Pastor Casey and I have uh, forged a really good friendship, and I'll tell you what, I love your pastor. I really do. I love Casey. Also, I think it was last year, the ladies of Church of Blaze joined with King's Cross and City Prayers, the ladies of City Press for a women's conference, and I, I really hope that you guys don't let that be a one-time thing. I hope that that will be and turn into an ongoing relationship between the two or all three, because there's much work that needs to be done in Oklahoma City. Amen. Let me give you a quick introduction. My name, as many of you know, is Nathan Williams. I'm the lead elder of Church of Blaze. We're on the northeast side. Uh, our motto is spreading abroad the fame of Jesus Christ. We believe that we are called to turn the, the lost into believers, turn believers into disciples and mature disciples into disciple makers. Sometimes you have to be very mindful of someone's last words, and some of the last words of Jesus are found in Matthew where he says, go into all the world and make disciples. And so we are very intent on that very thing, making disciples, um, that the majority of ministry doesn't take place here behind the pulpit, but it takes place in your workplace, in your communities, in your schools, wherever you may find yourself, that's where ministry should take place. And so we are very intent on uh, our members being very active in discipleship. I've been married to my wife, Tina, for 38 years. We have three adult children, 37, 35, and 32. I have one grandchild. Unfortunately, my grandchild, I was talking to Gary earlier, my grandchild is in Texas, not here in Oklahoma. So I don't have quite as big a smile on my face as he does when he gets to hug their necks every day. Well, let's get into the word. John chapter 4, verse 34 says, My food, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you will, join with me in a tradition we do at Church Ablaze. If you have your Bibles, paper Bibles, electronic Bibles, if you would hold those up. If you don't have a Bible, hold your hand up for you are a living epistle written. Okay? So... As you hold that up, if you would repeat after me, this is the word of God. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. To me, you got to emphasize that. To me, it is sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. I do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus, you are the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to you shall not hunger. Whoever believes in you shall never thirst. So feed me now. So feed me now. So feed me now. Lord, I thank you for the food that I'm about to receive. May it enlighten my spirit, refresh my soul, and activate my body for service. In your kingdom, I pray. Amen. Amen. It's always good to say grace before you eat. Amen. Amen. As I said, it is an absolute joy uh, to be here this morning. Um, if you will indulge me, I'd like to go back over the reading just one more time. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 18. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one New man. That's where I get my title from. In place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In Ephesians 3, verse 4 through 6, says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And again, the title that I'm working with this morning is One New Man. One New Man. You know, I grew up here in Oklahoma. My dad was in the Air Force, so I'm an Air Force brat. I was actually born in Grand Forks, North Dakota, and no, I've never been back, and I really haven't had a desire to go back. Um, And so I grew up, my dad retired from the Air Force, and and we moved here when I was in first grade. And so I grew up here in Oklahoma City, uh, graduated from Douglas High School, um, went to Oklahoma State for a couple of years before I went into the military. And so Oklahoma City is my home. Uh, the street, the neighborhood that we grew up in was a fairly quiet neighborhood, except for my next-door neighbor. If, if I could use one word to describe them, it would be evil. They terrorized the entire neighborhood, vandalized property. I think my dad probably bought me six bicycles over the years that I was growing up because the neighbors would steal them. They terrorized kids as they walked to school. They were the neighborhood bullies that had both adults and children scared of them. I mean, they, they were difficult. There are many days that I, I wish that either they would move or we would move. But unfortunately, as I told you, I grew up in North, Northeast Oklahoma City, 
neither of us moved. So I had to endure my neighbors uh, my entire life until I got a reprieve and went to Oklahoma State, moved away. Eventually, I went into the military, came back home, married my wife, and took her to Mountain Home, Idaho. Anyone ever been to Idaho? Yeah? It's not a lot in Idaho. Southern Idaho looks like northern Nevada. It's actually desert, tumbleweeds. So the name is deceiving. I, I thought, oh my God, I can't wait. Mountain home, Idaho. So I'm thinking beautiful mountains. And, and then I get there and it's desert. Literally tumbleweeds going across the highway as I went to the base. But it was one of the best places for me and my wife. We really met some beautiful saints of God there that really deepened our faith in God and helped us mature in God. One of the things we loved is that we'd come home for vacation, and so since it was so long, such a long journey, many times I'd come home, I'd take a three-week vacation, so we would come home. So fast forward several years later, me and my wife are here in Oklahoma City on vacation, and guess who I run into? Those same neighbors. But you know, this time there was something different about them. They seemed different, and as I began to engage them, I found out to my surprise, to my shock, that the father and both of the oldest sons were now Christian ministers. The ladies in the family were now serving the Lord. Can you say shocked? I mean, I have to admit, in the back of my mind, I actually wondered, God, are they too far gone for you to reach because of how much evil they had done, how many people they terrorized. It was, it was hard. I, to, to be honest, I had mixed emotions when I met them. On the one hand, there was great joy that my next door neighbors who did not know the Lord, who were not serving the Lord, who were terrorizing people, they're now saved. They're now serving God with all their heart, and they were absolutely sincere. And there was great joy, but I have to admit, and, and I hate to admit this, honestly, I was sad and actually a, a little bit angry. Because like, God, why couldn't you have saved him a long time ago? Why do we have to go through all of that? Why couldn't you have saved him when I was like eight or nine years old and we wouldn't have had to go through all of the trouble and all the issues? And I, and I tell you, it felt odd to look at them and call someone brother who I once looked at as my enemy. Difficult. If I'm honest, I really struggled a little bit to fully embrace them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as you reflect back on the text, can you imagine what the Jews felt when Paul revealed this great mystery to them? You know the Gentiles. Oh, you mean the Gentiles that have terrorized the people of God from the Old Testament times, even all the way up to today. The ones that we have nothing to do with whose customs fly in the face of God, who at every turn blaspheme God with their lives and with what they do, and that we want nothing to be a part of those lives. And Paul said, yeah, those people, they're now your brothers. and They're now your sisters in Christ. Can you imagine what they felt when that mystery was revealed to them? I know they had a couple of questions just like I did. God, how can they now share in the same relationship with Christ as I do after all the people they hurt? How can we call the, the, the same Lord, Lord, after all they did? 
How are they equal heirs of the promises of God after all of the evil that they have put upon people, all the evil that they have done? How are they now able to walk in the grace and the favor and the promises of God after they've walked in darkness for so long? They were so far from you, God, and they live contrary to your word. And your, How is that possible? How do you think God answers that question? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the dagger, verse 11. And such were some of you. See, in all of my, my judgment of, of my, my, my neighbors, my former neighbors, and how evil they were, I kind of overlooked the fact that my heart was evil too. Does not the scripture say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? That all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before him? And so I'm looking at them and I'm judging them for all the evil they did as if the evil that I have done does not compared. It's not equal. So how many can say convicted? Absolutely was convicted in heart. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's at that moment that I, I, I really began to understand, even on another level, the power of the blood of Christ, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, its ability to change, its ability to transform, its ability to reach even to the farthest flung areas and draw back those that were wayward. I mean, you know, the gospel has power. It absolutely has power to change and to transform. And so I'm standing there looking at these transformed lives, convicted in my own heart that I had judged them as if they were too far gone for God to reach, that they were too evil for God to even bother with. The blood of Christ, as you know, has the power to do what we in our flesh can never do. It has the power to break down that wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, that wall of hostility that existed between me and my neighbor, that wall of hostility that exists between you and whoever you may call an enemy, whoever you may be at, at, with at, at odds with, strained relationship. The blood of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to break down that wall so that the two things that were separated looked like they could never come together, now have an opportunity to be reconciled. That passage then says, then he created in himself one new man in place of the two. So it wasn't just good enough for God to say, I, I want you to forgive each other and you live your life and you live your life. He says, oh, no, 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 I'm not happy with that. Not only are you going to forgive, but you're going to reconcile. You're going to be joined together. As one new man, as a matter of fact, I'm going to unite you all even in one body and consider you one people. And that is the power of what God has done. When we talk about and we think about the power of Christ in this one new man, 
we realize that all of us who name the name of Jesus Christ are now part of one new family. I remember when I ministered this word at, at City Press, something similar to this, I, I mentioned about children who uh, have the uh, congenital uh, issue of Down syndrome and how children who have Down syndrome actually look more like family than they do to their own natural family. And I told them that Christianity is kind of like that. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a, a, something that you are infected with, if you will, when you get born again. So that you and I, who are part of the body of Christ, who are part of the same family of God, should actually look more like one another. Maybe not physically, but in spirit. We look more like family together than you may look that, than you are to your natural family who may not be serving Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one, one family, one new man, united in the one body of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things I love about Casey's heart as he and I have fellowshiped, and that is his heart for unity, and to see the body of Christ unified, the body of Christ here in Oklahoma City unified, where we speak with one voice, we operate and have the one heart, one mind, all about the singular purpose of exalting and uplifting the name of Jesus Christ in our city, so that the name of Christ, the presence of Christ, transforms this city that we're in, into a place that becomes the envy of all the cities and the, the states around where they say, what is going on in Oklahoma City? Look at the unity that is there. The presence of God is the only thing that could have done that. He and I share that. In this reconciliation, I want you to realize that there's an order, if you haven't noticed, to reconciliation. That first we're reconciled to God. And then those that are his, he reconciles to one another. First to God, and then those that are his are reconciled to one another. If you ever wondered why the world struggles to operate in unity, it's this very thing right here. True unity is actually only possible in Christ. Have you noticed that people in, in a, people have is something about the nature of sin that causes us to separate and divide ourselves and want to seek supremacy over another. And that's why people within the same nation, even though they share the same nation and the same national culture, they can't get along. People even within the same race and ethnicity many times can't get along, sometimes within the same religion. In the military, we had all these military briefings about Iraq and Iran and things like that. And one of the interesting things is Obviously, they are at odds with us as we were in the country, but then as we left out of Iraq and left out of Afghanistan, they are now at odds with one another. It says, surely when the Americans leave, there will be unity amongst them. And it's like, no, because now Sunni is fighting Shia. So even within the same country and within the same ethnicity and within the same religion, they cannot get along because it's only the Spirit of God that causes you in your heart to be able to see someone who looks nothing like you, comes from none of the same background as you, to look at them and see them as family, to be one. So unless the Spirit of Christ is at work in the heart, unity is not possible. 
So that's why we want to see what? The entire world saved. Amen? Because there won't be unity without it. There won't be peace without it. We just saw that. It's only the blood of Christ that breaks down that wall of hostility. Otherwise, we will find a reason to separate and want to try to gain advantage over the other. So, you know, right here is, is really a, it's a good place to pause, and I want you to consider, based on this text, your own life. Are there those in your life that there's this wall of hostility between you and them? Do you have any family members that you haven't spoken to in quite some time? Because some things that have happened in the past and, and, and you just have not gotten around to reconciling and, and, and you see each other at family reunions and in passing and at events and at weddings and funerals and you know that there's this issue between you but you don't say anything and they don't say anything and, and, and it hasn't gotten too contentious so you just kind of let it go. So are there family members there's this wall of hostility? What about the person that you used to call friend that may have lied on you and betrayed you, or in your greatest time of need, they didn't stand with you when you thought that they should. What type of friend are you? You know that I'm in need, and you're not here with me, and then that caused a wall, a division between you and them, and you may not have spoken for months or even years. What about that coworker, or in my case, like that neighbor that you just could never seem to get along with? And quite frankly, when you see them coming, you you. You, you, you want to go in another direction because you know that there's tension between the two of you and you just haven't been able to get past that. Lastly, I want you to think about, as we pause here in this text, I want you to think about the people that you have wronged, that you were the one that possibly betrayed or cheated or stole from, that you failed to stand with them in their time of need and you were the one that fell short, and now out of your guilt, your shame, your embarrassment, it's easier to avoid them rather than to confront them. And so I want you to know that the grace that Paul is speaking of, this grace that reconciled Jew and Gentile, that same grace is active today. Somebody say amen. It's active today. So if you would, let's just take a pause right here in the middle of this, and I want you just to bow your heads and let's pray. And I want you to reflect on any relationships that you have this wall of hostility between. Relationships where you, need to, you know that you need to reach out and to resolve. The scripture says that if you, you bring your gift to the altar and you realize that you have an ought with your brother, an issue with your brother, it says leave your gift and go and be reconciled. Go make it right with your brother or your sister. Father, we pray right now and we lift up, Lord God, and we ask that in the name of Jesus, Jesus, we know that there's power in the blood. There's power to save, there's power to heal, there's power to forgive, and there's power to reconcile. So Jesus, we call upon you now to reconcile, to bring together what we have been unable or possibly even unwilling to do. Break down the wall of hostility that exists between us and our family, between us and our friends, between us and our coworkers and our neighbors, Break down that wall of hostility. Let there be forgiveness that's shed abroad in all hearts. And God, we not just want to be satisfied 
with, being for, with forgiveness and going our own way. Let us be reconciled one to another. Amen? Amen. I was just a pause in the middle. We're not done. Now, concerning this one new man, Galatians speaks of it this way. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 29 speaks of it this way. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, the Jew has no advantage over the Greek, and the Greek has no advantage over the Jew. There is neither slave nor free. The slave person has no advantage over the free person. Free person has no advantage over the slave. There is neither or is no male or female. Male doesn't have advantage over female. Female doesn't have advantage over male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. When you come into Christ, the playing field is level concerning the promises of God. That's what it's talking about. The promises of God. Twenty Verse 29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs. That's equal heirs. According to promise. So once we come into Christ, no one has an advantage over the other person. It reminds me of Jesus and his disciples. You know, when you think about Jesus and the, the, those that followed him, I believe that you can be as close to Christ as you want to be. You think about the crowds. There were, there were times he, he spoke to the crowds of 3,000 and 5,000, and many of them came out and heard his words, and after he was done speaking, they went back home. Then there were the 70 who followed him, and those were the ones that he actually were able to task and to delegate to. Go out two by two, and he sent them out, and they saw miraculous things as they went into people's homes and prayed for people and laid hands on the sick and saw them recover. And the closer to him even still was the 12 who got to hear of his teachings and see his life modeled an example. They got to watch as he escaped early in the morning to go off to pray for hours. Here's a little side note. Jesus labored in prayer hours with his father so that he only had to labor minutes with men. You ever notice that? He would slip off many times well before the sun came up to go and pray and to commune with his father. And then when he came back from prayer and he met someone that had a, a demon, when he met someone who was need to be healed, when he met someone that was challenging him, whether the Pharisees or Sadducees, it was only but a moment that he dealt with men because he had spent hours with his father. And then amongst the 12, there were even the three, Peter, James, and John, that got to see things that the other 12 did, the other nine did not. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there was John, John the Beloved, the one that Scripture says laid his head on Jesus' bosom, the only one who literally got to hear Jesus' heart beat. You can be as close to God as you desire. Because the playing field is level. There, no one has an advantage to God and to access to God over you. Not Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, male or female. All are one. Equal access in Christ. Let me give you a couple takeaways. Then I'll close with an encouragement. Takeaway number one, nothing is too hard for God. Can you say that with me? Nothing is too hard for God. No one is too low that God's grace cannot reach down to get them. No one has strayed so far away that his grace cannot search them out, 
find them and shepherd them, guide them, lead them back into the fold. No one is so depraved in their sin that his grace cannot save them. Nothing is too hard for God. So when you encounter people, never give up on those that you encounter. I'm ashamed to say I kind of gave up on my neighbors. I thought they were, they were gone too far. I thought they had done too much evil. I thought they were too depraved. And to my surprise, to my joy, to come back and find them saved and serving the Lord. Takeaway number two. Never give up hope. Never give up hope for those in your life, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances that seem to be far away from God's will. I had the benefit of having a, a praying mother. My mother, I had, my, I, had a, I had an awesome mother. She typically woke up about 5.30 every morning, never needed an alarm clock. She'd sit at the kitchen table, so before we, she got us up ready for school, to get ready for school, she's sitting at the kitchen table with her Bible open and her cup of Folgers coffee, having her morning devotions. And so many times we would get up, and as we're getting ready for school, I would hear her in there either praying or hear her in there singing songs of praise and worship to the Lord. She was one that never gave up. She continued to pray. No matter what situation that you were in, no matter what you were going through, no matter how far you seemed to have strayed from God, she never gave up. She continued to pray. She continued to reach out because she believed in the hope of Jesus Christ and that you cannot run far enough to outrun God. You can't fall low enough that his hand cannot reach. And you cannot be so depraved in your sin that he cannot save. Third takeaway for you is that when you fall, know and trust that his grace is there for you. You know, they say that, that the hardest person sometimes to forgive is yourself. When you are the one that disappointed your husband or your wife or your family, your friends, your fellow church members, co-workers or neighbors and acquaintances, when you were the one that fell, when you were the one that did not live up to expectation, when you were the one that did not represent Christ in the way that you know you should have, and sometimes the hardest person to forgive yourself. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That we're walking in the light with God, but sin causes us to break fellowship with God. But as we confess that sin, he forgives us and cleanses us and restores us back into fellowship. You need not walk into guilt and shame. God has dealt with that. Lastly, let me leave you with this encouragement. I want you, this, this King's Cross Church, to be mindful of your ministry within and your ministry without. What do I mean by that? Your ministry within is, is the ministry to those of the household of faith. It's your ministry to one another as the body of Christ. Uh, I'll remind you that the church in the book of Acts was birthed at Pentecost. Jesus gathered his disciples together and he breathed on them and told them, receive the Holy Ghost. 
Then he told them to go to Jerusalem and tarry till you be endued with power from on high. So Acts chapter 1 opens with them going to Jerusalem and they're hanging out, waiting, don't know what's going to happen. And as they're waiting and tarrying in that place, it said the Holy Spirit fell. And it fell upon them as cloven tongues of fire and they hear people speaking in different languages. Then Peter stands up and declares to them, says, you guys, you understand what's going on. This is that. This is that that was prop prophesied by the prophet Joel, that he said that I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. And they realized that this was the fulfillment of a prophecy from the prophet Joel. And then Peter preached this powerful message about who Jesus Christ really was, the, the one that you crucified. He was the Messiah. He's the one that we have been waiting for. And it pricked their hearts so much they cried out, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You shall receive the Holy Spirit. And it says 3,000 at that point were added to the church. So understand, Acts said that there were people from every nation on the earth gathered there in Jerusalem. So the first church, when the church was first birthed, it was a multinational, multi-ethnic church that was birthed. And it says 3,000 were added to the church and others were added daily, such as should be saved and it was growing on a daily basis. And here's the key, the encouragement to you about your ministry within. The life of the church, the life of the believers of Jesus Christ, this new church that was birthed, revolved around this that's found in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. It says, those who believed his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves, four things, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. If you as a, as a church, as a body of believers, center your life around what it says here, you will be thriving and vibrant body of believers that glorifies the name of Jesus Christ. That you fellowship around the apostles' teaching, the word of God, the word of Christ that comes forth in your midst. You, you, as we call it, you chop it up. Pastor Casey comes with a powerful word, and you don't let that word just die after Sunday, but throughout the week, you're talking about it over the dinner table. How do we apply that? How do we hold each other accountable to that word? My goodness, that was a great word. Man, that word convicted my heart so much. It convicted my heart. I need to call my mom and dad and tell them how much I love them and appreciate them, and it spurs you to action. And they revolved around the apostles' teaching. They revolved around fellowship. That's... The Greek word for that is koinonia. I love that word. It means participation in one another's lives, communication to one another, contributing to one another. It means that what's going on in your life matters to me and that I'm going to share everything that I have with you and you share what you have with me. When people join Church Ablaze, we don't have an elaborate membership ceremony or anything. One of the things I ask them to imagine as you join this church is imagine the entire church were standing around this huge round table. And you lay on the table such as you have. And you take off the table such as you have need of. So in other words, when you join this church, you make available your gift, your talented ability, whatever God has put in your hands, you make that available to your brothers and the sisters as they have need. And when you have need, you are free to take off the table whatever it is that you have need of. Some of you have a gift of encouragement, Romans 12. 
And so when I'm low and I'm downcast, I hope that I could call those of you who have a gift of encouragement and you're willing to come and minister that gift of encouragement. Some of you have a gift of giving. It just seems like resources come into your hands. And so when there are those that are lacking resources, guess what? Those who have resources are free, should be free to give into those that have need. This was the life of the church. The third thing they revolved around was the breaking of bread, which we're going to do, and that's the Lord's table. So I call the Lord's table the great reset. He said, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what are we remembering? We're remembering his sacrifice. But why did he sacrifice? He sacrificed that we might be reconciled to God and then reconciled to one another. And so it's at that time that you're about to take. That's why Paul was so strict in Corinthians when he says, examine yourself. Hold on. Before you take, examine yourself. Pause and take a moment. Because you're about to partake in saying, I am one in the unity of Jesus Christ and with his body. But if I'm not, if I have relationships and issues that are unresolved, it's best that I not partake until I resolve that. That is how serious it is. It is the way to reset. It's the way to reorder the relationships that have become frayed and fractured sometimes as we rub up against one another and as we interact with one another and we say things that we didn't mean or you say things you did mean but you didn't realize they would take it that way and it, and it causes friction. And then how do we resolve that? You resolve it at the Lord's table where I clear my heart and make sure that I'm right with you. You're right with me. We're right with God. And then lastly, it said that they revolved around prayers. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there was the altar of incense right before the veil. And it says they, they burned incense on it twice a day so that the interior of the tent was filled with this beautiful aroma of God. That the, the aroma was continual. And that's why in the New Testament, the New Testament picture of that, we are encouraged to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that you're always whispering and praying. It means that at every occasion, for everything, you're offering a prayer to God. I love Brother Lawrence. I don't know if any of you read his book, Practicing the Presence of God. Anyone read that? It's a great book. He makes a statement in there that I love. He says, I've never, gone, I've never prayed more than an hour, but I've never gone more than an hour without praying. And his encouragement to practice the presence of God is that before you go to do anything, no matter how great it is or how small or menial the task, stop and ask God for his grace. Stop and ask him for his mercy. Stop and ask him to empower you to do whatever it is you're about to do to bring him glory. And that's a life where you are praying without ceasing. You're, you're sending up the, the incense to God and the aroma of prayer continually is in your life continually in your family, continually in the midst of you because you're praying and revolving around the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. That is what the early church, the foundation of the early church was based on. That's the ministry within. In Acts chapter 4, when that takes place, this is the result when you minister to one another in that way. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 35. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Can you imagine a day when everyone in King's Cross can look at each other and says, I have no need. That when I had a need, Taylor helped me out. The Shutt family came to my aid. And so the things I thought I lacked, I didn't lack because it was present in the body. So therefore, we all look at each other and say, you know what? All our needs are met. We all have what it is that we want and that we need. Why? Because we share all things in common. That is the result of this ministry within. Lastly, the ministry without is our ministry to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. It says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God and through Christ and through Christ. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us two things, the ministry of reconciliation, and that is in Christ God has, is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the second thing, which is the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, and here's the key, God making his appeal through us. God wants to make his appeal to the world through you, through me. But it takes us being reconciled and being reconciled. And when that happens and we stand as one new man, then he is able to bring and to appeal to this world through us. John 17, in the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. He didn't say the world's going to be convinced that God the Father sent the Son because we are so good at preaching. Because our worship is just on another level. He says, the world will be convinced that God the Father sent the Son when we are actually one. When we are unified together. Us and him. He and us. One new man. It's the unity of the body of Christ that convinces the world. What is it that they have that we the world have been unable to do since the inception of time? God desires to make his appeal to this world through us. If you'd bow your heads with me, let's close in prayer around this aspect of the one new man. We are all part of the one family of God, one body of Christ. Heavenly Father, we were created for your glory, for your glory. Your word declares in 2 Timothy Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honor, honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I pray, Lord God, make us vessels fit for your use. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that at the proper time you may exalt us in due time. In the same way, God, it says in Matthew we want to let our light so shine before others so that they may see our good works. And when they see our good works, 
that they would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I pray for King's Cross Church and Church Ablaze that we all yield ourselves to you so that you can make your appeal to this world through us. In Jesus' name, amen.